Welcome to Club Management. I'm your host, DJ Shannon, and on this show, we talk to artists, DJs, and industry professionals on how they're changing their community through music. You can listen to the show on any platform like SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Just type Club Management. And this is episode 54. We're back for another episode of the Club Management Podcast. And last week, I told y'all, I told y'all we was going to be extending the conversation on music in the crypto space because with everything that's happening in the world right now, the musical landscape is just changing so fast. Uh, In 2020, you know, us DJs, us producers, all content creators, you name it, we saw that our entire income stream could be pulled from underneath us. And that scared the daylights out of me. And I knew I never wanted to be in that position again. So now that I'm somewhat on my feet, I'm literally fighting tooth and nail to support myself with a cushion. And I want that for all my creatives and producers that are listening uh, to this podcast. And maybe, just maybe, the crypto space might be an interesting way to build secondary income. And there are artists that are using the space to build really powerful communities, like electronic jazz pioneer and pianist Mark DeClive Lowe. The genre-bending producer and DJ takes listeners on a sonic adventure as he explores a multitude of different genres. Think of it as his personal diary, if you will, that allows Mark to explore his identity and deep Japanese ancestry. Flip between any page and you might find an excerpt with jazz, broken beat, percussion, and of course, drum and bass. The BBC's Giles Peterson described Mark as the man behind a million great tunes. And Mark has made music with some of the best of the best in the industry, from Kenny Dope to DJ Spinna. Last year, he minted his very first audio-visual album, Motherland, on the blockchain, and he followed it up with a series of NFTs. Now, he's taking it to another level in the crypto space with the Buy Back campaign, a crypto crowdfunding project he's launched to help buy back the rights to all of his seven albums. We talk about building equity in the music industry, but this is one hell of a way to do it. Mark chat with me about his interest in the crypto web three space, his bustling Mashy Beats Discord and online community, and how NFTs can be used as a way to fight for ownership in the music industry's fast changing landscape. Um, before we dive into what you're doing currently with the Web3 space, I'm just fascinated to learn about your history as a musician and your background as a person, and particularly how heritage seems to be a reoccurring thing with all of the work that you do. Um, you are from New Zealand originally, am I, am I right? Yeah, I'm a Japanese New Zealander. I grew up predominantly in New Zealand, a little bit in Japan. Um, like I go there the summers to see family and finish high school there and it's kind of it's definitely a second home um and at this point in my life um it's japan's kind of become my my spiritual home where the ancestral connection is really strong mm-hmm. and new zealand's become my kind of like my body's home it's kind of hard to explain but i feel like the way as a person I was born in New Zealand and raised in New Zealand, that's my body's home. But my kind of, yeah, my spiritual home feels like Japan, which is kind of an interesting um, perspective or conclusion to come to on that um, after enough time on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so I I was born in New Zealand um, in the, in the, let's call it the mid seventies. And my my dad um he's super old school and he he had a resentment around never being allowed to learn a musical instrument mm-hmm. when he was younger so he was like you know come hell or high water when i have kids they'll damn well learn musical instruments <laughs> and um and he meant it so yeah age four i was on the piano um and i i took classical piano lessons and then i kind of I, didn't, I never really connected with classical repertoire as a child. So mm. he was really into like big band jazz, like, you know, 30s, 20s and 30s big band jazz. So mm. I got into his vinyl collection. And then my oldest brother was into kind of like, I guess, 50s jazz, like early bebop. So I got into that through him. Mm-hmm. And then I found like a, you know, like a, a Beatles songbook and a Queen songbook and a Supertramp songbook and just kind of, 
that was my kind of gateway from classical piano into kind of I guess you know modern modern music um right. and you know growing up in New Zealand in this time like you know I was born in 74 so the you know New Zealand especially pre-internet was definitely on the other side of the world mm. and um you know music and culture would kind of filter through whatever global media channels there were at the time which you know were few and far between really mm. um so I, I was you know musically I was kind of exposed to I guess like a lot of us, a lot of us were in that generation you know what my brothers were into um and then later on what my friends were into and everything really turned a huge corner one day at school in New Zealand I would have been, I want to say I would have been 15, maybe. Mm. And a friend of mine, like all my friends at school were listening to guitar music. They were all into like the Pixies, the Cranberries. And I was like, cool, but I, I didn't really, I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't light my fire, right? Right. And so before school one day, this friend of mine walks up to me. He had his Walkman and put his earphones on, my, on, my, on me and hit play. And it was the first Guy album and I had never heard anything like it in my life and so here I am hearing like you know Teddy's Jam and Groove Me and We Can Spend the Night like hearing all these this like kind of proto New Jack swing mm. and I think really as a because I grew up playing piano I could really relate to it because it was keyboard based music as opposed to guitar based music mm. um, and there's something kind of fundamentally different there and you know, I didn't, I didn't think of it as like black music or even American music, like the way we received music in, in New Zealand, it was like this mix of like UK music, US music, Australian music, a bit of New Zealand music. I didn't know what was what. I mean, I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I knew it wasn't from New Zealand, let's put it that way. Right. Um, but that was kind of like my gateway into native, native tongues, hip hop and, you know, everything from, you know, Public Enemy through Tribe, Brand Nubian, Digital Underground. Um, I just I just fell in love with all of that. Bought myself a drum machine mm. and a and a synth and a sequencer. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to be Teddy Riley. And so, <laughs> so there I am in New Zealand, like you know, 15 years old, with you know classical piano background, but no production concept, but just making beats and loops and collaborating with a lot of um, like MCs and singers in New Zealand. So I was producing like without knowing I was producing, I guess, um, mm. around 1990. Um, and, and actually through that really meeting a lot of, a, a lot of like, my, you know, my school was fairly middle-class and not that diverse, um, but through music, I really connected with a lot of the Polynesian and Pacific Island community in New Zealand. Mm. So it kind of, um, you know, it was basically the, a, a lot of Samoan kids, a lot of Maori kids, a lot of Tongan kids who were into black music. Mm. Um, and so that became my crew. And I was just, you know, making these weird beats. And I, I'm sure there's a demo tape floating around somewhere. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know <laughs> There's always that one demo tape, you know. <laughs> right. But um, I... You know, I, I, I was quite, I've always been fairly extreme. Um, that to say, when I would decide something, I'd kind of go all in. Mm. And so I remember waking up one morning and thinking, oh, these, you know, all these loops and beats, it's all bullshit. Let me, I'm going to sell my drum machine, sell my synth, sell my vinyl. Like some of these 12s to this day, I've never seen them again, ever. Mm. Like, you know, I used to go to the record store after school every Friday and they'd, they'd have imports from, from the East Coast, from the West Coast and like the stuff I've never seen again. But um, I remember thinking how many versions of Paid in Full could there possibly be? Because there'd, there'd always be a new <laughs> remix 12-inch coming through. Right. But so, yeah, so I, I had this kind of momentary epiphany, sold everything. And I was like, it's just me, the acoustic piano and Miles Davis and John Coltrane records. That's it. And so I went hardcore jazz. Um, and then it became this kind of pendulum swing for a few years where I'd kind of go back, go between, you know, I want to be an acoustic jazz piano player and live in New York and play with 
you know, people who are still alive then, like Art Blakey and Betty Carter, and like the, the legacy artists who had young musicians in their bands. Right. And then I'd then the, then the pendulum would swing back, and I'd be like, oh my god, like Michelle and Deggio Cello, New York and Soul, Jungle, Drum and Bass. Like, so yeah. I just it was it was kind of I do I do both, but they were very separate to me. Like I didn't see the parallel, and mm. you know now with historic hindsight, the 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 intersection is very clear and the Venn diagram so to speak is very clear mm. at the time it wasn't like you know like I know now that a lot of what I loved about Tribe Called Quest was the samples and the fact that they were 70s jazz samples and the sound of the Fender Rhodes I know that now but I didn't know that then right. I was like I don't I don't know this is, these are beats basically you know right but actually to stop you really quickly there yeah what alerted me so much about Tribe Called Quest is that that sample-based production was then, it kind of opened up a floodgate for me to then go find the original tracks or exactly. just like go down this rapid hole of discovering even more music. So I yeah. feel like doing that. <laughs> and you know, especially at that time when we could look at the liner notes and see the credits and see what's been sampled. I mean, you know, obviously right. we, we have like whosampled.com now, but we don't have that kind of direct tangibility with the, with the streaming album or whatever. Um, soon after that, connected, reconnected with a friend of mine from New Zealand, a sax player named Nathan Haynes, who at the time was getting, was collaborating with house um, producers and drum and bass producers. And so Nathan, you know, I meet up with him and he takes me to Metalheads, to Goldie's drum and bass label, and we, and we cut a track for Metalheads. And then he introduces me to Phil Asher, the late great Phil Asher, who um, produced under the moniker Rest of Soul and for many would, is considered like the masters at work of, of the UK. Right. And so then I'm in studio with Phil working on a remix for Four Heroes. So like in the space of a week, I've kind of like techno drum and bass kind of house, like it's just tick, 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 <laughs> which was wild. It's like, you know, there's people who, they wait a long time for these opportunities and they kind of fell in my lap. Right. Um, and then Phil took me under his wing and mentored me. Um, you know, I had to go to New York for, for a bit. So he calls Joe Clausell and says, hey, my boy Mark's coming over. You know, you should connect. Right. So I went to meet up with Joe and played him some of my music, um, which was like at a time, I remember playing him a collaboration with some Ghanaian hand drummers I'd done. So I was like, I think you'll like this. Um, <laughs> and then I thought nothing of it, like especially at that age and not knowing people too well. You know, I was like, I don't know. I don't I don't know what impression I made or what was going to come of this and I knew who Joe Corsell was so I didn't expect anything right. and then I, I remember like a few weeks later the phone rings it's Joe Corsell he's like yo can you come to the studio like do a session tonight I'm like cool okay so I go to the session and <laughs> I mean this is in, in hindsight this is also funny to me like he's like oh yeah hey Mark this is this is Francois it's a studio and I'm like hey Francois um, and then it's like, yeah, we'll do this track. It's like this artist, her name's Cesaria Evora, and we'll just do this track and, you know, just play some roads. And so I, I was not understanding what was happening. I didn't understand that I was in Francois K's studio. Wow. I didn't understand this is a Francois K. Joe Corsell collaboration. I didn't understand what Francois K had done at that point. Right. And I didn't know who Cesaria Evora was at that point. And we were doing a remix of a song of hers called San de Verona, which I didn't know was already a huge hit at Body and Soul. Right. And so we created this, this alternate remix of it, um, kind of more balearic, percussion heavy. And it's just, it's basically me soloing on the roads the whole way. Mm. Um, and so within a few months, it's like this back to back, all these, you know, what I would come to know as, as heroes and you know, masters of the craft who I got to collaborate with and have this one-on-one -on -one time with, had so much support from them. Right. And I was just like, this is it. This is like, you know, between the UK, between London and New York, it was like, this is, this music is everything I've always loved in music, kind of digested and assimilated as influences and re-expressed in a way that I never imagined was even possible. Right. And that was actually more, more to do with the London thing because in New York, it was more like this is house music. In London, it was what became a style called Broken Beat. Mm. And that came out of kind of people being misfits. For example, 
you know, like, like Phil Asher, super established as a house music producer, he wanted to switch things up. So he starts moving the kick drum around. And for house heads, they're like, that's not house music. You know, it's not four on the floor. Right. And so, so for a minute, it was like, you know, that's called, we call that house, not house. Um, or like four hero who came out of like drum and bass primarily. They're like, well, you know, we don't have to make everything at 160 BPM. So let's make some shit at 130. Mm. And then the drum and bass scene is like, that's not drum and bass. So it became this, this community of misfits and the, the, the rhythmic complexity of the language while still being dance music and club music was, was so inspiring to me. Like I, the idea was every day, like we'd hear each other's tracks and then go to make a track. It's like, well, I'm, I'm not going to bite their rhythm, but that inspires me to explore rhythm. And so it became this kind of hodgepodge of, it's kind of like what, what open, if, if open format DJing. Right if that evolved into a production style of contemporary music, the right. eclecticism, but it's still, you know, like most open format DJs still kind of subscribe to, you know, a general Genre, one, or two, right. one or two buckets, right? Or something. Right. Um, so that became that. And after my year of travel, I was on my way home to New Zealand through Japan. I saw an MPC drum machine in the store. I'm like, wow, do I, do I need it? No, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Kept them in and out of the store. And I bought this drum machine, went back to New Zealand, and I made a record that it became an album called Six Degrees, which was basically like a, like my journal, my, my, my documentation of the year of experiences, like Cuba was in there, like Joe Clausell was in there, IG Culture, Bugs in the Attic, Phil Asher was in there. It was all, all his influences were in there. Right. Um, and that record got signed in the UK. And at that point, I was like, well, let me move to the UK. And that pretty much laid the foundation for, that was in 2000. Mm. So that laid the foundation of the last 22 years. Um, right. you know, touring the world, pioneering a lot of kind of what's seen as normal in jazz beats hybrid, hybridity now, like really pioneering a lot of that. Um, you know, absolutely pioneering the idea of live beat programming, you know, yeah. taking having a drum machine on stage and having nothing in it and making the shit live. Like that is not that unusual now. It, had, it was not being done you know, before. So then that, that leads me to what happened in 2008, am I right, with the church party series that you threw in, in, in Los Angeles, yeah? Yeah, so I was in, based in London for 10 years and um, it was interesting because I'd, I'd, I'd always wanted to live in America, but this detour, was a decade long and I'm so thankful for it because obviously it's so formative and a huge part of my own story. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, at that time, my, um, my son's mom and I had split up and she, and she got a job teaching in LA. Mm. And so I, I took that opportunity for us to come, you know, separately together for our son to the States and LA was then my new home. Um, I'd never imagined being on the West Coast. I was always, in my mind, it was always New York. Um, but it worked out well because there was something about after a decade in London to go to California and be back beside the Pacific Ocean, which I grew up with in New Zealand, mm. and being coastal again and blue skies, it was almost a taste of home. So that was nice. Um, and also, I, coming to LA, I really reconnected with the piano as an instrument. Like, mm. for 10 years in London, I barely touched it. Like, you know, a producer would be like, hey, let's put some piano on this track. And be like, no, let's put some synth on the track. <laughs> and to, to a non-player, you might be like, oh, a keyboard's a keyboard. But a, a real piano is a totally different instrument to a synth. Mm. You know, it's, it has, you know, it's made of of different materials. It's not electronic, it's acoustic. Um, it responds to touch in a different way. And then more to the point with me, because I was forced on the instrument at a very young age, I, I, I didn't even know I had some trauma around the piano. Mm. And so after a decade of just like beats, synths, remixes, samples and all that, came to, came to LA and um, the, the girl I was dating then, she had a piano at her house. Um, and I just, you know, she began ready to go out and I'd just start playing the piano. 
and just started kind of reconnecting and realizing, oh, this is my old friend. Um, <laughs> and then we ended up getting married and um, collaborating a lot. Amazing. She's an amazing singer songwriter named Mia Andrews. Um, and, you know, our, our, our personal union didn't, didn't last, unfortunately, but um, our, we got to create a lot of great music together and she really encouraged me to reconnect to the piano. Mm. And so there was something interesting here to unpack where in the UK club scene at the time, the idea of jazz, like improvisation and a lot of, a lot of notes, for want of better words, just to simplify it, a lot of my peers refer to that as noodles. It's like, we don't want noodles on the track. It's like, this is club music. And that really got me into this, into this idea of, with a production, every sound is highly functional. And a lot of notes is not functional. It's more like filler. That was my perspective. Mm. And so I kind of had to hide, hide the jazz musician inside me and kind of feed it subversively, under, kind of almost under the beats. Right. Um, but then in the States, it's a different story jazz is native music and you know it's it's from black america it's, this is where it's from like no one's going to complain if you put it you know raise it in the mix basically right. <laughs> and so i was able to you know i kicked off this party as you said called church which was the idea was you know let me let me illustrate the whole story of my entire journey over one night mm -hmm. let, let's let's mash up the jazz club and the dance floor and see what happens and so that was that was great for me to be able to you know i'd start playing jazz trio like grand piano upright bass player drummer and it would morph into like a live house music party so the dancers would come early and they'd hear me flipping some felonious monk or some ornette coleman acoustic mm. the jazz heads would stay late and see the place turn into a dance floor with whackers and capoeiristas and everything together just throwing down. Yeah. And it became, you know, the, the narrative was very cohesive in what I was trying to share. Um, that, in, that was a monthly party for 10 years in LA and a couple of years in New York. We did that at Drome for a couple of years mm. and eventually led to, a, to an album by the same name, Church. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's so incredible. Um, you Thank got... You so much incredible music and I kind of want to tie this into what you're doing now now with your buyback campaign but um you mentioned your track with DJ Spinner earlier which is called You Should Be Loving Me which is incredible that's that's one of them <laughs> yeah I mean there's there's so much to unpack here but you've got so much incredible music um I got rhythm with Kenny Dope the, you know, the, the demo of that mm -hmm. had Raheem Devon singing it really yeah Raheem wrote the song yeah what? But I thought there was, I, I don't know what happened, but for whatever reason, V ended up doing it, which is awesome because V is incredible. Yeah. But that's a, that's a little tidbit of information. And then also the session, like Kenny came to London. It was so ironic. Like, you know, Phil, Phil Asher, who was super tight with Kenny, he's like, oh yeah, Kenny's coming to town and he, he wants to bring you in, into the studio for a session. Yeah. You know, Kenny wants to make a broken beat tune. And the, the irony was that, Kenny is one of the original inspirations for the Broken Beat sound, period. So it was like, what do you mean Kenny wants to come and make it? Kenny is Broken Beat, like what? <laughs> and so, so he came and we, we did the joint, um, super fun, like, you know, killing drums. And he gave me pretty much free reign to create music however I wanted to. Yeah. And then we had some more time. So I was saying to him, it's like, man, you know, I've been doing some work with Leon Ware and we were talking about his new records. So why don't we do a track for Leon? Mm. And so Kenny just knocks up a, a soul beat just like that. Yeah. And I did some music. It was a really dope track. Leon loved it. And Leon wrote what I think is, you know, in, in, in modern years, the most classic Leon Ware song ever. Mm. And and it never came out. <laughs> oh no! It's you know, it's it's a demo, which I still have a demo, but I've got it as a bounce, so there's no parts or anything. And, oh man! But um, but yeah, so two very magical things happened that day in studio, and I'm glad at least one of them saw light of day. Yes, and it's amazing. <laughs> um, so you've got this extensive catalog, 
And now 2020 or over 2022, yeah, now to 2022, we've seen artists take this massive wild ride with what's happening with the pandemic. And yeah, mm. just the whole musical landscape has kind of gotten flipped over somehow with all of this. Um, but now you're using NFTs and tapping into the power of Web3 to buy back your albums, essentially. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, some people like what's Web3. Yeah. And, you know, if, you know, simply put, it's, it's analogous with when people say crypto or mm. blockchain, it's all the same thing. Um, yeah. It's crypto-based technology. And there, there is a mainstream narrative, which is very anti. Um, mm. And to address that momentarily, because I'm sure you'll have some listeners who are like, I read in the New York Times that blah, blah, blah. But, the, <laughs> but legit, the mainstream media has a vested interest in discrediting this new technology because it takes their power away. Mm. And that might sound like some kind of conspiracist thing, but that's actually, that's legit what I believe. Um, same with banks and governments. It's like, you know, they've controlled the narrative, they've controlled money, right. what, what money means, how it works how they hide our money from us. Like that's all been government constructs. And this is essentially a potential solution to that. Mm. Um, so all that to say, I, I came into the, the crypto space, the Web3 space, probably late 2019. Um, and it fascinated me. Like, you know, I've, I've always loved technology, um, like in general, and then also in music making, like, if there's new tech and music making, I've always been an early adopter mm. and been about like, you know, how can I explore this? You know, how can this help me, me grow and evolve? And so this was really no different. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up being like thinking I was thinking I was like a computer programmer when I didn't know what anything about it, but there was this kind of, this, this kind of fantasy tech life in a way. Right. And so now to be able to be involved with tech without being a coder, or an actual tech kind of geek is incredible. Mm. Um, you know, I the first NFT that I minted was a it's, it's a collection called Motherland, and the main part of it is a forty-three minute audiovisual album. It's an instrumental homage to my Japanese roots, nice. set to nature footage that I shot in Japan, and that the whole thing just felt like it had so much personal narrative. And then it's forty-three minutes long. It's like, yes, I could just put this on YouTube and break the tracks up onto Spotify, but then where's the narrative gone? Like, where's, where's the entire meaning of this as art gone? Mm. Um, and so putting that on the blockchain as an NFT was a whole different proposition. It's like it can be retained in, like, cohesively. The narrative can be retained, and I can set my own terms for it, basically, um, and also make some money from it, absolutely. And so that was... My friend who mentored me into the space, um, he goes by the name Sursu. Uh, he he really he really instilled in me the importance of putting culture on the blockchain. Mm. And that to say, if none of us did that, then say in ten years' time, the blockchain would just be full of, you know, finance stuff and right. and. And you know, with the Warren Buffetts and whatever. But if we contribute culture to the blockchain, then in 10 years' time, it's gonna have culture. It's a cultural record. Mm. And the idea is it's indelible, immutable, it's there forever. Um, and that that means something in a digital time when we're so used to digital files being temporary. It's like, right. you know, if you if you delete that MP3, it's gone. And you don't really care because you, you're like, I can get it again. So to kind of address all those issues. And so I've been getting deeper and deeper into the space and understanding that it's not just about selling NFTs. It's like there's people building whole music platforms on top of this technology and right. whole communities evolving. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it's mind boggling what's happening. Yeah, and I so, think it's, um, just to stop you right there, yeah, really quickly, I yeah. think a lot of people are wrapped up in the idea that NFTs are just solely these you know, these ridiculous board ape images or, you know, <laughs> whatever, hey. I don't know, a guy holding a monkey or something. Um, but, hey, but if you if, if you had a board ape, I'd gladly take it off your hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true too. <laughs> not, not to say, you know, not to totally trash it because people are making some real good money out here with them. But 
um, I think that there's a little bit of um, gray area about what you oh, yeah. can actually do with NFTs. For example, Coachella yeah. is offering mm-hmm. kind of like an NFT lifetime pass to the festival for 10 okay. lucky people who buy it. Okay. Um, and then That's Nas actually just minted an NFT earlier this month where mm-hmm. he allowed people to buy ownership into two of his songs. So yeah, they get royalties. Unique ways to use the, you know, the, the. Absolutely. I mean, in a different way. You know, it's like it, the easiest way to explain it is an NFT is a box. Right. And, and you can put anything in the box. And, you know, you could have a box full of junk. You could have a box full of diamonds. You could have a box full of, you know, signed MBA memorabilia. You could have a box full of, you know, toilet paper rolls. Like the, the, you, can't blame, you can't blame the box for being a box, right? It's what's in the box. Right. And so in this context, the box is digital. And it's and every box has an identifier, like a number, which is dedicated to it. So that box is always going to be that box. It's not going to be confused with the box you have, for example. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, yes, there are like any industry when there are these kind of black swan or kind of blue moon events where something makes dumb money. Like you know, you hear about well, someone made a hundred million dollars in one day. And most people's reaction is it's a scam and therefore the whole thing's a scam. Right. I mean, I think Spotify paying 0.003 cents, 0.003 dollars a stream, that's a scam. That's you know, I, I think the IRS is a scam. Right. You know, there's lots of things I think are a scam, which don't include crypto. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a matter of perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then all that to say, there's all this amazing tooling and that led me to what you mentioned, which is the buyback crowdfund campaign. And the idea is crowdfunding money, but instead of in dollars, I'm crowdfunding in ETH, Ethereum, which mm-hmm. is one of the primary um, cryptocurrencies and crypto technologies. And then the idea is I raise this money and the money is primarily to reacquire, to buy back seven of my back catalog albums from the labels who control them. This is a big deal. You know, like artists throughout time have been stuck in record deals, unable to extract themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, Prince really showed us when he, you know, he wrote Slave on the side of his face, right? And went on national television. So, you know, this is not a new problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And with these, with these albums of my own, um, you know, we have this kind of system in the traditional record industry where when you have a new say a new album then the label puts it out and because it's a new album they can they promote it easily it gets its little buzz and hype because it's new and then say maybe after six months to a year or whatever it's no longer new right and so at that point the label's like well we're not going to invest more in this product because it's not new and then we have this other artist who's about who's got their new record so we're going to put our money there and then as, as, as me, I'm like, well, hey, well, how, I, like, give me some shine. And, and then they say, well, cool, give us another album. And then that'll shine light on your old album. You know, that's how it works, Mark. And so what that leads us to is a situation where a record label in the traditional model does, just, does not have the tools to, to exploit a release to the artist's advantage if it's not hype. If it's not buzzing, they don't know what to do. And that's problematic for me because these are albums, you know, my albums are, you know, they're some of my children. These are my, you know, reflections of my life and my experiences. These are documents of time and and, and life. And so I want them to be cared for. And I know that I can exploit my back catalog. And I know I'm willing to invest in my back catalog because it's mine. It's not this label. It's like, oh, it's not even ours anyway, really. It's, it's, his, it's his music. We have another record by this other artist to promote. And so it's, so the, the buyback campaign is not like a, like a tirade against the label system, even though I am fundamentally opposed to a lot of what the traditional label system does. There are some good labels. There are some good labels doing good things. I do think that the traditional music industry is fundamentally structured in a way where the exploiter gets the majority share. Mm. And 
I think it's important that the creative, the creator of a work, they get the majority share in all circumstances, like no matter what. Um, unless they're being paid, you know, hand over fist. It's like if Apple give you, I don't know, $100,000 to use your music, then cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but then Apple are not going to own that. So, you know, it'll be all good. So, yeah, so the premise is to raise this crypto money to then buy back the albums. But it's actually the next stage which really excites me. So hopefully this isn't too convoluted to explain and this is a good challenge for me to explain it in a way which is digestible. <laughs> so for, 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 for everything you contribute or pledge to the buyback, mm. you get a crypto token back called buyback. And that token is relative to the amount that you pledge. So if you pledge one ETH, one Ethereum, you get a thousand buyback. If you pledge 0.1 ETH, like one-tenth, then you get 100 buyback. So it's relative to how much you contribute. So the buyback is an actual coin. It's a token. Or well, it's token. not, I mean, it's not a physical not coin a physical because coin. it's a crypto. Right. It's a digital token, yeah. And so it's like, well, what's that for? So the idea with that is, is it's primarily a tool for governance. Mm. And now what does that mean? So what this means is, so I have my, well, it, I would always say my label, but it's evolving into much more than that. My label called Mashy Beats has evolved into a creator community online and it still has its label aspect, but it's, just, it's, it's kind of evolving into its own thing. But it's the umbrella for everything I do. Right. So the idea is that if you have buyback tokens, you are one of the people in the governance level of Mashy Beats. Mm. So then what does that mean? So for me, that's like, if I take three of my fav all-time favorite labels, let's say, let's say Blue Note for the jazz, let's say Def Jam for the hip-hop, and let's say Brain Feeder for the Electronica, yeah. right? Those are three pretty Ill, Ill labels, right? So if we took all three of those labels in their earliest heyday, when they were pure, and I'm not saying they're not, but I'm just saying when they were really pure and they, you know, when Blue, when Blue Note wasn't owned by Universal Music Group and whatever. Right. And if, if, we, if, if all three of those labels were one entity and I could get you a seat at the table Ooh. to help shape and direct this entity, like you have a say in that. Ooh. And so the value is firstly in that you get to contribute. Right. Ultimately, there can be financial value in that, but I'm not promising that to anyone because that's straight speculation. But for example, if, so the idea is that Mashy Beats has a treasury fund and that treasury fund grows from me putting a percentage of my NFT sales in there. And there's a couple of other mechanisms which are crypto based, which will build the treasury. Mm -hmm. And then as a governance committee, we decide what happens with that. Ooh. You know, so it's not a governance it's not governance to the point of me saying, hey, which snare drum do you think I should use? Or, or who should I get to play a bass on this track? It's not about the creative process. It's about everything after that. Mm. So that's, it's, a, it's basically proposing a, a community, an, an organized community that has this token mechanism for voting, which is, it can't be beat, like it can't be forged or cheated on. It is what it is. And, you know, having people create cultural value together. Ooh. You know, that's, that's the basic premise. Interesting. Okay. I like <laughs> that. <laughs> you did a good job of explaining it. So <laughs> just to, I mean, just to clarify here, it's Please. not people who have these to uh, tokens. It's, it kind of feels as though they, they're almost like your, your business partners in a sense. Like they get a chance to help to, uh, you know, they have a say in what goes on with Mashy Beats, essentially, to some level or degree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's not easy as an independent artist mm. when you're, you basically, you know, most independent artists are more or less solo en entities, you know, kind of like managers come and go, labels come and go, et cetera. But the artist is, you're always going to be there by yourself. Mm. Um, and so... Just for me personally, the idea of having this kind of governance committee to bounce ideas around and brainstorm and, you know, there's, there's these 10 projects I want to do and here's the pros and cons with all of them. 
help help me decide what we're going to do. Mm, or then, or then we might have a treasure like the treasury is built up, and we're like, okay, so let's let's invest in in, in another artist. Let's talk about who that is, and let's why don't we put two artists together who would never ever be brought together mm. and and make some new shit? Like, I mean, the 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 possibilities are endless, really, right. and it's kind of like. You know, like like we're all familiar with, say, Kickstarter or GoFundMe, and some people kind of challenge me when I started the buyback. They're like, "This is just, this is just a GoFundMe. Like, why is it in crypto?" Right. But if you contribute to a GoFundMe or Kickstarter, that's the end of the transaction. It's like you know, you contributed your money, and then in the context of what we're talking about, the artist then uses the money to make something happen, mm. and maybe they'll send you a vinyl or a cd or a concert ticket or maybe there'll be something transactional as a perk but it's not about building an ongoing relationship it's not about building community like for real and it's not about giving someone a voice mm. so the proposition is completely different and the mechanism which lets me do that is cryptography it is these tokens right. which because they can't be forged and you either have them or you don't. So the mm. you, you, know, you have like a crypto wallet, which you might, if you're in crypto, that might have some of your Bitcoin or your Ethereum or whatever, your buyback will also be in there. And they won't, they won't have a monetary value, but they're like a key. It's like, that's your access. Mm. I love that. I want to stay on this topic of the naysayers who are kind of raising a few eyebrows about mm. just buying back your, your music in general, because this is a big theme that we've seen across the music industry literally over the last couple of years you had taylor swift who oh my god yeah headlines with literally she just redid her old her old her old album to get the yeah. rights back to the music it's <laughs> wild when you think about it um there's a lot of people assholes i will call them that will argue well you knew what you were getting into when you signed these contracts and huh. you know that 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 kind of terrible speak what do you say to those folks who pretty much say, well, you're kind of shit out of luck. Why are you doing this now to buy back your music? <laughs> <laughs> I scoff at them. But, yeah. <laughs> for, but for real though, like, so, so, okay. So why do artists sign record deals that are not in their best interest? Mm. That's kind of what you're saying, right? Right. Okay. So you got, you've got an artist and they're living hand to mouth and it's like you know i believe in what i do this is what i do i need to make music mm. i need some bread to make this record so along comes a record label hey you know i'll give you i'll give you 20 grand which you know in independent music you can do a lot with 20 grand mm. and so if we're talking to an artist who's living hand to mouth and you say hey here's 20 grand the first thing the artist will think is oh my god the music i'm going to make with this because, because musicians and artists are not lawyers. Mm. They're artists, they're creatives. I'm lucky I've always had kind of a bit of a brain in, on the business as well, but still I'm in this position. And so, okay, so you get this point. So the label's like, okay, I'll give you, we'll, we'll, we'll do this for you. Love your work. We'd be so honored to have you as part of our family. We're going to do so much with this record. Right. And and then I'll start looking, you start looking at the contract and being like, mm, well, what about this? And they'll say, well, I mean, that's better than that other label's deal. So therefore, this is a good deal. Mm. And so it's kind of a smoke and mirrors. It's, it's very deceptive. There's, you know, I've, I've gone to labels and, and kind of said, well, what about if the deal looked like this mm. and proposed a total alternative? And there's, they're not, they won't even consider it because they're, 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 the bar, their measuring stick, their yardstick is a standard major label contract, which is one of the most exploitative contracts there is, mm. period. And so when an independent, independent label's saying, for example, a very common independent label deal right now is 50-50 of net. So what that means is the label will spend money on the release, mm. Let's just use numbers for hypothetical purposes. The label spends $10,000 on the release. And then the first $10,000 of income pays off that $10,000. And then everything after that gets split 50-50 with the artist. Mm. Now that sounds fair in theory, right? What we're not considering is that 
when I deliver this album to the label, I'm not getting paid for my lifetime of craftsmanship and 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 everything that goes into making music. Right. Usually I'm not even being paid for the cost of making the damn record. Like there's so many labels that will not that like the, if I go to the label and say, well, this record cost me twenty thousand dollars to make, so let's make the recoup that on the recoupables too. Right. They won't accept that. It's like, oh, we've never agreed, we didn't agree to that, so no. So then the the artist is, artist is shit out of luck no matter what. Mm. And and I I mean, I've I've had a deal, I took it to a, a really good lawyer. Um, and this is in 2000 and probably three or four. And I took, I took the contract to a lawyer. He red penned most of the contract. And for those who don't know what that means is when someone red pens anything on a contract, it's stuff that they're, they're saying, this is not cool. This has to change. So they, they literally put a red line through it. So, so this contract looked pretty red at this point. Wow. And then the lawyer said to me, but you know what? If they won't change a word, sign the deal. Are you kidding me? No, because the, the, the thought process here is, is that there are much worse deals than this around. You have a record label who want to put out your record. And this is before DistroKid and shit like that too, right? Like, the, right. like there wasn't the infrastructure for me to, you know, go to DistroKid, sign up, pay 10 bucks and have my record out. So that's where these deals come from. It's like, you know, we were given no choice. There was never um, like transparency in, in the business of it. Mm. Nothing was ever fair or equitable. And so if I end up signing a record at one point for 25 years, because the label's like, it's 25 years or nothing, and I'm like, well, I, I need this record to come out. And I mean, I see this label doing their shit. So let's see what happens. You know, kind of roll the dice. That's not unusual. Mm. And what, what ends up happening is out of 25 years, after two years, it's no longer a new release. The income plummets. It, it, it trickles over on DSPs, on Spotify and stuff. But that's the end of the story. And the label holds on to it because they're thinking, what if in 12 years' time, HBO want to license one song and brings in $100,000 and then we make our money off that. It's like, well, what else are you doing apart from waiting for a payday that may never happen? Like, mm. you know, that's a gamble. Like, we all, we all love a sync, but there's no guarantee you'll get a sync. Mm. So I, 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 hopefully that addresses the naysayer who's like, well, why did you sign a deal? You're dumb. It's like, well, the music industry is dumb. And right. It's, it's just what we've had to deal with. And, but yeah. now, now we have the tools to do it different, mm -hmm. which is bad. huge. Huge. Like, you don't even need a label at this point to do any of it. I mean, I mean that it's arguable, and, and that's where I'm not, I'm not going on a tirade saying all labels are bad, but I think mm -hmm. some, you know, some labels, they do the work well, they have brand value, mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like a brand partnership more than a label. Right. And I, I think the future of record labels is going to be more like that, more like kind of brand partnerships. Mm. Um, but I hope that the deals just become more equitable because, you know, the, the music industry was created in order to exploit musicians. And I could even go further and say it was created in order to exploit black musicians because it was. Yeah. And for those who, who just don't think that, well, I'm not black, well, then I'll just say musicians. It was made to exploit people. <laughs> this, is, this is the bottom line. It's exploited it. That's why it was built. Mm. And then they took all of our revenue streams, like, you know, publishing, mechanical royalties, performance royalties, master royalties, and they put them all in different pies mm. and they hid the pies. So you've got to be a detective to find the pies and then bring them all together. Mm. And each of those pies is controlled by a middleman who takes their cut. And they're all gangsters. They're like, well, we, we have the right to do this. It's like, says who? Yeah, that's a fact. So, so the um, worst case scenario, well, first yeah. of all, where are you now in terms of your crowdfunding? Sure. Well, I mean, today, because I mean, the podcast won't come out today, but let's say today's February, <laughs> okay. today's 2222, auspicious, um, February the 2nd. And so the crowdfund is going to end on Friday, which is February the 4th. Mm. 
It's currently at about 9.5 ETH, nice. which um, today is probably around around $26,000, $27,000, I think. The, the target goal is 12 ETH, which I'm hoping to reach by Friday. And the interesting thing is, is that because cryptocurrency is, is super volatile, um, the interesting thing is that the market, most agree the market's quite low right now. Mm. So if I don't hit the 12, it might be a matter of just holding the ETH for like a month until the market comes up a little bit. So that's worth more in dollars. Right. Or maybe it's about me topping it up myself, or maybe it's about um, my next few NFT drops I want to do and a percentage of those goes to the treasury and that will top it up. I mean, any which way, like it, this is happening, the buyback tokens have already, they get issued immediately when you, when you contribute. So that's already happening. And I mean, it's happening. The whole thing's happening. <laughs> <laughs> that is so beautiful. I'm, I'm really, really rooting for you in, in all of this. And I really hope that when you go to those labels and say, hey, I, I've got the money, they just give it back to you without any problem, you know? Well, see, this is the other issue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> There's another issue. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, the, like the labels have agreed over email. Like we, we've, we've agreed to dollar amounts. Yeah. And we've agreed to the principal, but one of them has already gotten a little bit iffy because, because I subtweeted something about, you know, like if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see most of what I talk about is music industry related. Mm. And I'm, and I'm not a fan of the traditional industry. That's clear, but I will never out someone. Mm. It's like, if I talk about an, if I talk anecdotally, it has been fully redacted. So the only way that you would be pissed at me is if you were the offending party. Mm. So the fact that some, some, some tweet, which I was fully redacted, kind of made them ruffle their feathers is just, it's kind of funny to me. But if it comes down to them saying, well, we're not giving you your, your records back, then, I mean, then we, you know, we call the lawyer and, and play the next game. Oh my goodness. Uh, I really hope it doesn't have to come to that. But it's so interesting to see you using this as a platform to not only bring uh, community together, but, you know, to help you with your career and keep doing what you do at a fair and consensual pace. So um, I really, really respect that. I, I respect all the disruptors that are kind of showing up and saying, hey, look, we're not really feeling this, this model or this way of doing things. We want to change things for the better, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's no reason why, you know, like forget crypto totally. There's no, for, for a second, there's no reason why a label can't come to an artist who, like I've dealt with majors, indies, labels all over the world. Like I have enough experience. If a label came to me and said, Hey, Mark, what, we're thinking of like restructuring our deals. What do you think would be a fair deal? Mm. I absolutely have ideas around that without even mentioning crypto. Like there are more equitable ways for deals to happen. Definitely. But the labels aren't interested because they're looking at margins based on history. And historically, they have the majority margin. Mm. Let's, let's pray that this Web3 space is the way to go. Um, actually, prior to speaking to you, I did a really beautiful interview with a group called Currents. And what they're doing is trying to start one of the first uh, decentralized music festivals on the web. So, oh, wow. they're, yeah, they're trying to like get all these different crews from around the world and throw this online festival to show, you know, that we could do this as a community on our own. We don't necessarily need the backing of these big corporations to, you know, to do it. That's great. I mean, that, I, I, I love that whole premise. And I mean, for me, a lot of the challenge is how do I, like, if I can, if I can thrive through crypto with my career, how do I port that back into the real world? Ooh. That's, I mean, obviously at the moment, and it seems like the world's getting better in general, right. but obviously we've been pretty, you know, shut down for a couple of years and, you know, live streaming is a thing. I do live stream sets. I enjoy it. There's nothing like playing for people. Mm. There's nothing like playing with people, for people. Like there's nothing like it, obviously. So there's this kind of, I mean, my girlfriend has been like, oh my God, you're going to be just like in a VR, 
in a VR headset all day and I'm never going to see you again and we'll have to go on dates in the metaverse. And it's like, no, the, the whole point of this is to create sustainable systems mm. so we can, like, exist in the real world properly. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it's, kind of, it's almost a fantasy for me right now, but I, I hope, like, my kind of, if I had a big picture aspiration mm -hmm. for myself personally, it would be for the way my music exists in Web3 and the way it creates its revenue mm. is such that whether a gig pays $50 or $5,000 or $50,000, my motivation for that gig would be, do I want to play it? Mm. Because my money's good. That's the goal. Mm. Because oftentimes the gig that, when it comes to gigs, like I've played parties where some of the worst paying parties have been the best gigs right. and some of the best paying ones aren't necessarily also the best gigs, you know, it's like, it's, it doesn't always equate. So imagine being able to take money out of that conversation. Like, you know, whatever the pay is, I don't, don't even tell me, just, I want to do the gig. <laughs> and you know, the, the, I know that sounds very privileged and super first world, but um, you know, the musicians, artists, producers, DJs, like, everyone's been told has been told that you earn your money from streaming and from touring mm. and from merch like these are your revenue streams but in reality touring doesn't pay great you know if you're if you're absolutely top of the tree you can make good money right but the reality is is, is that the promoter or the whoever's paying you they're paying you based on your 45 minutes or two hours or whatever on stage and the number of people they think you can bring into that room. Mm. They're not paying you based on the fact that you have to fly 15 hours in economy and that, you know, you lose five days in order to play one set <laughs> or, or any, any of that shit. Right. right. You know, they, they barely even pay airfares these days. Like most gigs, you've got to pay your own travel. Mm. Um, and so, you know, touring is actually not that economically viable. And then once you have a band, forget yeah, it. Like, forget about it. And then know. look, like we saw in the case of COVID-19, so many people's tours got canceled because they just couldn't tour. So what happens Absolutely. in that kind of example too, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, obviously now there's issues around that where people are scheduling tours, but they can still get canceled and all that kind of thing. But yeah, so that's, you know, I, I, just, I just don't believe that's the answer, but we've been sold that answer and that's intentional. We're coming out of the interview between me and Mark DeClive Lowe. What a whole play-by-play -play booklet, y'all. I really hope you were taking some notes because I certainly was when I <laughs> was listening to the uh, interview and, and going back and editing. I was like, oh my God, this is cool. You know, um... I am still exploring all of what Web3 and, and crypto has to offer, but from what I'm learning about the space, you know, slowly investing into some coins that I think are really going to be uh, big in the next year or so, I think it's revolutionary. And uh, I'm seeing so many of my peers and musicians that I love um, launching really, really cool projects in the space. I was just looking at Joe K's Twitter page for for uh, example, and he talked about how he was able to collectively split a big fee between himself and some of the selection members. They created this like big mix on, um, I think it's a platform called Song XYZ, if I'm not mistaken. And they all contributed to this big selection mix and got enough donation in crypto to be able to, yeah, essentially like all take profit from it which i thought was really really fascinating and it's something that can be used for musicians just looking to build another cushion or literally build their own platform for their music without having to go to a label um i think it's important to stress that um you know you know labels there are some that have integrity there are some that see eye to eye with um artists and musicians vision so i don't want this to be a bash the label kind of <laughs> episode but i do want to stress the importance of finding ways for musicians to hold on to their masters finding ways um for musicians to build their own 
platforms where they get to keep 100% of the equity because I think there's so many different tools out there where it's possible that you don't necessarily have to go to a label and you know have to borrow money from a label to get your music out there when you can literally sell direct to consumer and have your fans come straight to you and, and buy your music off you or merch whatever have you so um that's important and i really want everyone to explore those ideas especially in this web3 space because i think there's so much promise uh but yes please follow mark to clive low i will have his information in the comments uh because i think he's just someone that you can learn from um if you're looking to get into the space uh and please keep donating to the show thank you so much um big shout out to sefa and we had two other people join uh, the Patreon community over the last two months. I really appreciate you all for taking time to, um, you know, just listen to this podcast. I think of this as a way to just disseminate information. Um, have a good time. Learn about people. Meet people. Build friends. I've built so many incredible friends from this show over the last year or so. So thank you for continuously supporting me. If you'd like to, uh, if you're new to the show and you'd like to donate, it's patreon.com slash clubmanagement1. I will have that info in the comments as well. Until next time, we've got a lot of exciting shows planned for the next month or so. So I'll be happy to be back and share it with you all.